Welcome to Personally Invested. I'm your host, Dave Richardson. Today, I sit down with Sarah Riappel, her second appearance on Personally Invested. The last time, we talked a little bit about Sarah's uh, life, uh, her experience in her early career, and the role that she plays in constructing portfolios uh, where she works at RBC Global Asset Management. This time, we take it a step further. For Canadian investors, we look at Canadians' natural home bias towards investing assets in Canada, the need to build portfolios that have more global exposure, but also the unique challenges that are involved in building those portfolios when you open the number of choices from a limited number in Canada to literally thousands of choices all around the world. It's an interesting perspective from someone who is hands-on building global portfolios for investors every single day. Enjoy. Sarah, welcome back to uh, Personally Invested. Thanks for having me again. Again. So yes. last time we talked about, uh, well, a lot about you, uh, but also about general portfolio construction and, and some of your thoughts around that. Mm -hmm. uh, in the interim, we've had lots of guests on. Uh, from all over the world. Not as who, good as me, I'm sure. None no, as good no, as you. Yeah. We, you have to we, say that so I'll keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, certainly no one as charming. Oh, thank you. Uh, and, and as intelligent. I don't know about that. Okay. But uh, lots of people who are managing money uh, in all different parts of the world and have talked a lot about the importance of global diversification. Most of the people who, who listen to this podcast are based in Canada, mm -hmm. and so they're Canadian investors, and they, they tend uh, for, and, and this happens in virtually every country around the world, they tend to have a bit of a home country bias. They tend to be more comfortable investing in Canada. So uh, even when we bring experts onto this program and have them talk about the importance and the opportunity of growth in emerging markets, China, India, so many countries around the world, uh, obviously the largest economy in the world just south of us, the mm -hmm. United States, uh, Europe, uh, all these different areas that, that provide so many different opportunities to invest, yet Canadians are more comfortable investing in Canada. And again and again, we see Canadians stay home. And you've even got some numbers on this to, to talk about just how strong that bias is. So it's not just their investments. It's their house. It's their jobs. It's they get, you know, stock options through work. And when you add all that up together, I think they probably have, I, the statistic I saw was 90% of their investments are invested in Canada. And as you said, it's not specific to Canadians. This concept of home country bias is true of, of everybody around the world. They just, people are more comfortable staying invested close to home. And that's not necessarily the, the best option for them. Yeah, and, and, and particularly, and we, we brought this up on, on the podcast uh, in, in, in previous episodes, Canada only represents about 3%, a little bit less than 3% of the world's investment opportunities. Yeah, about 3% of the, the global stock market and about 3% of the global bond market. And, and Canada is actually the 10th largest developed economy. So it's, it's quite far down the list. So, 
you know, you really have to look outside of Canada for other investment options when you're, you know, building portfolios and, and you know, want to diversify those portfolios. You have to look outside of Canada because you get a lot more solutions to choose from when you look on a more global basis. Yeah, poutine, <laughs> uh, back bacon, maple syrup, very delicious. Yes. Uh, but if that's all you ate, it would uh, be a boring life and you'd probably look a lot like I do, which is which is why I'm doing podcasts instead of videos. Instead of videos. But, uh, is that but, why we canceled the video? No, that's no, not I'm why. No, no, no. I've been, 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 been trying, to, trying to manage my weight a little bit. But, uh, you know, and I, I think even Canadians, based on some of the numbers that you have, are even more biased than, than some other uh, investors in other parts of the world. Yeah, a little bit. The 90% number that I mentioned is, is one of the higher numbers that I've seen on the, on the statistics, for sure, yeah. yeah. And I think some, you know, people are concerned about the risk, and they think investing outside of Canada means uh, investing in more risky asset classes. And I actually don't think that that's true. In fact— So, so that, that, that's, that, you know, again, that, that's odd. That would be, that'd be counterintuitive to most investors that I would talk to. Uh, they think investing close to home, Canada, what I know, that there's a, there's a comfort in that. There's a security, maybe even lower risk. But you're saying that's not that's not the way you think about it. Well, I wouldn't – no, I wouldn't consider Canada to be a risky country. But the Canadian equity market is focused on a couple of um, sectors. So energy and financials are very important and large sectors in the Canadian equity market. And then the Canadian economy and market have a tilt towards commodity-oriented names, which are traditionally more volatile and – and trade with commodity prices. And so, you know, I would say you want to diversify your exposure and um, doing that, that doesn't mean that you're taking on more risk by going more global. You can go and invest in, you know, German bonds or you can go invest in, you know, equities in Japan. And those are no more risky than than what you would be getting in, in Canada. In fact, I think it would be less risky because you're adding to your diversification, which lowers the risk profile of portfolios. Yeah, so so we we we've got a chart that we're 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 looking at here together, and uh, and and it, it it very clearly shows that a a balanced portfolio of domestic bonds and stocks, so domestic in this case being Canada, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you look at the risk and return relative to a global yeah. portfolio. Again, balanced, uh, fi- fixed income yep. and, and equities. So higher return, get- lower risk when you go glo- more global than when you focus on domestic only. And I really think that that's the power of the diversification because you get so many more options looking at a global landscape than you do looking just at your own um, domestic investments. So, so, so then let's get into portfolio construction because that's your, your your real area of of, of expertise and. You know, I, I think for for a lot of investors, it it's just a daunting task to 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 look out. So if I if I if I play out my food analogy, okay. uh, so if I've got a fairly limited choice of only Canadian options, and all of a sudden I bring in the thousands of different amazing food options that are available from all around the world. Uh, now I'm facing what's almost the paradox of choice: more choice. And and it, it's harder for me to make decisions. There's there's so many different options. I don't even know where to start in mm-hmm. terms of constructing that that globally diversified, balanced portfolio. 
So, so what's your advice and, and how do you approach it in, 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 in what you do? So it's definitely a, a daunting task. So the, you know, the more global you go, the more investment options you have to choose from. But we have an entire team that is responsible for doing that work for us and, and for myself when we're optimizing portfolios. Um, it's about having the right tools and the right resources and the right expertise to be able to do that. Um, you know, we take all of our investment solutions. So we have over 250. 75 different funds and solutions to choose from when we're optimizing portfolios. We throw those all into the machine that we call it, um, into the optimizer, and we are looking for the optimal blend of solutions or funds that will give us the best risk or return at the lowest risk. Um, and it's an iterative process. Uh, there's, we probably look at 30 different metrics when we're optimizing portfolios. Um, you know, it, it's quite complex, but we, we've been doing this for 30 years, so we know how to, to, to put these types of solutions together. Um, and I think that's probably one of the main reasons why portfolio solutions type products that are available in the marketplace um, have become become popular with investors is because the investment landscape has become so complicated that they are looking for somebody to help them out with that analysis. And, and that's sort of what you can do when you um, create one of these sort of multi-asset type solutions is, is, is to answer all of those questions on behalf of investors. So, so really, if I'm following what you're, what, what you're talking about here in terms of, uh, you know, an investor could, as a do-it-yourself investor, build a global portfolio. Absolutely. But as a, as a professional investment manager, you have some tools, processes, you have some advantages that just put you in a better place to get to a portfolio that will basically maximize return uh, while limiting, while, while minimizing risk. So I absolutely think that an individual investor could build one themselves, but they could not do it at the level of expertise that, that we're doing it. So for example, we, I've talked in the past about having look-through capabilities. And so if you take five funds and blend them together into a solution. Um, you need to understand what's going on inside each of those funds, and you need to aggregate those exposures up to understand what your true exposures are. Um, how much do you have in high yield? How much do you have in emerging market equities, for example? Do you have a, you know, a bias towards interest rates? Do you have too much, you know, value, um, a, a, the value style within those portfolios? Like, I said there's an enormous number of things that we look at. Even once we've gone through the exercise of actually blending and doing the optimization and building a solution, that's just the first step. The next step is to look at what have we built? Uh, how is it going to perform? How would it have performed through history? How do we think it will perform going forward based on the expected returns that we have for the various asset classes and markets and solutions that we're using? Um, you know, looking at in a rising interest rate environment, how would it perform in a bull market or a bear market in equities? How would it, would it perform? Like, there's a when, when we complete one of these the, the analysis and build one of these types of products, we probably have a hundred page deck of analysis that we've done. And we've looked at every single angle we could possibly think of to make sure that we've, we were comfortable that we've built the best possible solution that we can build for our clients. And that level of granularity and detail and expertise that we go into to build those um, is just, just so much more advanced than I think an individual investor could do by themselves. Could they do it? Absolutely. Could they do it with the same um, level of detail? I, I don't think so. And, and, of, and of course, uh, you, you're, you're working with a team of people that are up 24 hours a day, effectively, mm -hmm. as they're working around the globe. Yeah, uh, I get up very early, and usually the first thing I do is have to... Um, 
have a conversation with our head of Asian equities, Meyer, because I get up at 4.30 and he's just finishing his day in Hong Kong. And that's what we find is the best time for our to, to have a conversation. So I usually am sitting at a train station waiting for a train on the phone with Asia, <laughs> going through stuff with him. So Yeah. And, and then your connection into Europe and, mm-hmm. and, and, and really all over the world, which is obviously a, something that is, is very, very difficult for, for an individual investor to, to replicate. Yeah, well, we have 22 investment teams around the world in multiple cities, and they, they're embedded in the, the regions that they're investing in, and that we think that that's really important, is to make sure that they are on the ground in you know, the Asian equity um, team that is you know, doing analysis on Chinese stocks. We make sure that they are going into China and visiting companies. And it would be really hard, you know, obviously, an individual investor doesn't have the sa- access to the same level of expertise and information and data and research that, that we have access to. So, so if, you're, if you're looking to add a, a, a particular portfolio, just, to, just, just playing out what, you, what you've just talked about, and say you might be adding uh, Brazil, Mm-hmm. For exposure to commodities, mm-hmm. right? For for in emerging markets, uh, y- y- if you're not able to look through and see what's actually happening in that in that Brazil portfolio that you're adding, you, that that a portfolio might own a bunch of banks in Brazil, which is what not why you're well, looking yeah. for that exposure. So so it's very important to have a very clear understanding of all the different pieces how you're putting them together, and why, and the role that each of those pieces plays. Yeah, absolutely. Like Brazil's an interesting example. There was a, that's a place that you probably don't want to have too much exposure to right now. <laughs> well, well, we'll leave that aside. Yes, okay. We, we use, use, that, use that just for an example. Mm-hmm. But, but, that, but that gets to, as you, know, as you look at different areas that you're investing in, both fixed income and equity, um, and something that I've been reading uh, a little bit about, uh, lately is portfolio engineering. Mm-hmm. And so when, when you look at the individual pieces that you're using to build the portfolio, portfolio engineering becomes a, a, a big part of each of those pieces. Can you explain what portfolio engineering is and then how it's used within the different pieces that you use to build portfolios? So data has been coming more and more important tool for, for portfolio managers. And our, our, the availability and access to data is, has become, you know, has grown exponentially. And our fundamental job as portfolio managers is to manage the risks within portfolios. And so we need to leverage all of that data that we have available to us um, to understand what our exposures are. So our risk exposures, our factor exposures, our style exposures within portfolios. So if you as a fundamental portfolio manager um, sit down and put together a, a collection of 50 of your best ideas, that's great. But do you know what you've built when you look at it in aggregate? Do you know that perhaps you've built a portfolio that has a bias towards interest rates? but we think that interest rates are going to rise, that's going to be a problem for your portfolio. If you don't know that that's what you've built inside your portfolio, then you're, you're surprised when the, the fund doesn't exactly. perform well. Yes. Um, and so the portfolio engineer's job is to work with the, the, the portfolio managers and analysts to, to, um, to we'll say, risk those portfolios or to understand what the exposures are within the por- those portfolios, communicate that to the portfolio manager, make sure they understand what, what that is. And if they want those risks there, that's fine. The first thing they need to do is understand that they're there. Then maybe they want to accept them. Maybe he wants to have a bias towards interest rates. That That's fine as long as he is, was a conscious decision to have that there. Or if he's like, oh, you know what, I didn't actually mean to do that, then the portfolio engineer can provide them with um, 
alternatives of the way that they can maybe adjust, um, either adjust names or adjust weights of the names that they like in order to reduce that uh, bias or that risk in the portfolio. So, so, so that ultimately helps you when you're building the, 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 the portfolio from all these different pieces that you know that the, the investment a vehicle could, could be an individual fund that you're getting from a portfolio manager doesn't have those biases or it may have a bias, but the portfolio manager's chosen to have that bias, but you're also aware of that and you can feed that into your decision-making for building the, the broader portfolio. Yeah, that's, that's the bottom-up um, view of it, right? So we take a top-down view of it where we're, we're building the funds and, and blending the assets together and, or the, the solutions together. And then from a bottom-up perspective, we want to make sure that the portfolio managers on the underlying funds have built um, the most optimal and efficient portfolios that they can too. And then the portfolio engineering um, aspect of it is one of the one of the main tools that they have available to them to do that. Okay, and then the the, the optimizer when we uh, when we finish here in the room we can we can go out. It's a big machine. Yeah. Out just outside yeah. your office, that and we just toss the, the toss the <laughs> toss the funds in. Yes. So 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 tell me a little bit more about the 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 optimizer, and 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 how it. So now, so now you've got all these funds. You, mm -hmm. you understand whether there's biases or not, mm -hmm. or and, and and you plug them in. What's an example of of something that the optimizer would do to uh, to make sure the portfolio is constructed the, the way you want. So we look at so many different metrics. So risk and return are are obviously important. Sharp ratio. Um, we want to make sure that we're choosing portfolios that um, have steady risk or return profiles. We don't like. We don't want to pick a fund that had a great year one year and then four bad years and then a great year the next year. We would rather have you know slow and steady returns. We would what would like them to generate those returns with uh, as low a risk as possible. But then we look at a lot of different things like upside and downside deviation and maximum drawdowns and you know there's a whole long list of of criteria that that, that we look at when when we're blending portfolios together and so. Ultimately, what we want to do is we want to build a portfolio that can generate the best risk and return metrics for, for the clients. Um, and sometimes we have to make some some choices as to, to what will, will work and not work. And then once we've built, like I said, once we've built that portfolio, then we, there's the next step. And we might decide, well, actually, we, we don't want, we, we have too much high yield within that. Because if you build a portfolio that has five different fixed income funds, and once you've looked inside all of those, you find it, oh, actually, my high yield weight is, you know, 30%, that's just a very extreme example, um, you definitely don't want to build a multi-asset solution that has a 30% uh, allocation to high yield. So then you have to go back again and say, okay, well, now we need to um, re-blend the funds together or choose new funds to, so that we don't, by the time we're done, we don't end up with a 30% high yield weight. We want to have a lower weight to high yield. And so it really is an iterative process. And then uh, Dan Chornis eventually gets his hands on it. So you think that you've gone through your 10 or 15 scenarios. And then when he gets his hands on it, you go through 10 or 15 more because he he has been doing this for such a long time that he has you know great insights and he always comes up with something that um, we haven't thought of and so then it throws us back into the lab to go through a number of other different scenarios sure. and by the time we've gone through this whole process we all really strongly believe that we've built the best product that we possibly can because it's gone through so much review and so many iterations and, and we've looked at every detail we could possibly think of that we, we feel really strongly once we've finally gotten the thing out of the lab and, and gotten it ready for, for um, public consumption, so to speak. So, so when an investor buys a, a balanced portfolio or invests in a balanced portfolio, it, it's a, it seems like a simple one decision 
but there is so much stuff going on between portfolio engineering, optimization through through a through a very rigorous process. Uh, it's extremely sophisticated, extremely complex, and and it it seems to me, and and you can you can agree or disagree, that having that kind of rigorous process and all those tools. It, you know, coming back to where we started, is even more important if you're investing in a global portfolio than when you're just buying a, a domestic portfolio because of all the choices you have. Yeah, so global means more opportunities, uh, but also more investment options to choose from, which makes the optimization uh, process more complicated, um, but ultimately more rewarding. What's more fun, just a domestic portfolio or, or a, a one that's a little more slanted towards Canada or, or a real global portfolio, just from a fund manager perspective? Uh, I, like, I like something that has uh, lots of different opportunities to make tactical asset mix calls. And so having more investment solutions available or more access to more asset classes and, and regions um, gives me more opportunities to, to make um, calls on in terms of asset mix. When I say me, I mean the asset mix committee. It's not just me. Um, there is a whole group that uh, is involved in these decisions. But that's just another example, actually, of of the the resources that we've put ha- put behind this whole thing. Is that um, the asset mix committee is is ten people who are all experts in their individual fields, and we all get together and we talk about what's going on uh, in the economy and markets to make decisions on the portfolios. And um, we've put a lot of resources behind that part of the process as well. Well, thanks, Sarah. I think you've, uh, you've sort of lifted the hood on, uh, on what's underneath the, uh, the construction of, uh, again, what are very, very complex and sophisticated portfolios uh, that you're running here with, uh, with your team and with uh, your chief investment officer, Dan Chornis. Uh, thanks, as always, for your time. Thank you for listening to Personally Invested. If you have suggestions for future podcasts, please email us at rbcgampodcasts at rbc.com.